All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning, uh, verses 10 to 17. I have a little fun with us at the very beginning here. You look at the top of your handout there, and there's some squiggly looking marks. Well, that is not Greek, that is Hebrew. It's one of the verses that we read today. It would be an understatement to say that Hebrew is a language different than ours. It's a lot different. Look at the letters or the characters. Those are a lot different than ours. At least with Greek, there are some letters in Greek that look similar to ours. This is completely different. The big parts, those are the consonants. Little dots and dashes underneath each one, those are the vowels. It sounds different. Follow uh, The direction of writing is different. They don't read and write from left to right like we do. It goes from right to left. So I have a copy of that here. It starts here and goes this way. And I said, it sounds different. It sounds rough and almost like a Russian who's mad at you and wants to kill you. So here we have verse 12, which in English says, though a sinner does evil in the New King James, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. So what does this sound like in Hebrew? Well, I'd say follow along as I read the Hebrew, but you probably have no idea where I'll be at. But this is what it sounds like. The first word is a share. The second word is hote. And then it goes on from here. So, a share hote ose ra. Ma'ath uma'arik lokim lokim gan yodeach. Ania share yehye tu tov. Liyir e ha Elohim. Oh, that one sounds familiar. Elohim? We know that one. God. Asher yehu melafina. So what would this sound like if I translated it word for word translation that some say is the best translation, a word for word translation, okay? This is what it would sound like, a word for word translation. Though a sinner does evil a hundred, it will be long to him, knowing also yet that will be it good to the one who fears God, fears who openly. That wasn't very understandable, was it? It's a different language. And our response to this should be, praise the Lord for good English translations. We should be thankful for that. This also applies to figures of speech and how things are said. There's figures of speech in the Hebrew languages and how they say things that is different from English. Here, Solomon says his main point in the last two verses. He says his main point. We would put that first, wouldn't we? But he says his main point in the last two verses when he says, 16, I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that's done in the earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, and so on. Then he gives uh, examples and application points sprinkled throughout the rest. That's not how we 
think, and that's not how we speak. We say the main point, and then here's some examples, and then here's the application. That's how we think, and that's how we speak. But Solomon wasn't an American, if you didn't know that. Solomon didn't speak English. He was a Hebrew, and he spoke what? Hebrew. And so because of that, instead of walking through this passage phrase by phrase in Solomon's language, uh, what I have done here in these three points is I put it in our language, if you will. We're going to look at what is the main point, number one, that Solomon tells us. Then we're going to look at the examples he gives us about that main point. And then number three, what should you and I do? What's the application that he also talks about in here, but he mingles it in with all the other parts because that's how they thought and they acted and they they spoke, okay? The more that you learn, there can be a tendency, the more that you learn, there can be a tendency to contract a terrible physical, spiritual, and psychological problem. There's a Latin phrase for it for all these big, nasty diseases that you can catch. And the Latin expression for getting too much knowledge is big headius know it allius. <laughs> you get a big head, you're a know-it-all. Yeah, I'm joking, you know that's not the case. But isn't that the, the truth? The more you learn, what happens to your head? You get a big head, you get proud, you become a know-it-all. There's an expression that goes like this. A little Greek, or in this case, a little Hebrew, can make someone very dangerous. Someone starts to learn the Hebrew alphabet. If you've got a Strong's Concordance, in the back of Strong's Concordance, there's a dictionary for the Hebrew and the Greek. You learn the Hebrew alphabet, you can start to learn how to use Strong's Dictionary, and then suddenly you can think, I'm an expert. I know everything there is to know about Greek and Hebrew. Well, that's the case. You look at your Hebrew text there. You know, find the word ma'at there, okay? Yeah, you can't. It's the one, one, two, three, four, the fifth one from the right, okay? And even if you can't get that, don't worry about it. You don't know the letters. But as I was working through the text and reading through my friend's uh, one of the men said this, in the Hebrew, the word ma'at, or hundred, is in the construct state. He takes this ma'at to be an ellipsis for a hundred times, but alternatively, it can be an archaic absolute. You learned your Hebrew alphabet, and you learned how to use Strong's Concordance and Dictionary, so you can help me with this, right? A construct state? An archaic absolute? What in the world? We could repeat this with every occupation here. Truck drivers, accountants, farmers, engineers. I know a little bit about driving. I know a little bit about gardening and farming. I know about credits and debits. I know how things are supposed to fit together. So therefore, why can't I, why shouldn't I be? considered an expert in truck driving or farming or an engineer or accounting 
Because a little knowledge does not make you that, does it? Those things, what's the sermon title? Are above my pay grade. Above my pay grade. The reason you get paid what you do is because of your knowledge and skill in that area. Well, what's my point with all this, with Ecclesiastes 8, verses 10 to 17 here? You are not God, and neither am I. We do not have infinite knowledge and skill or wisdom. You will never have enough knowledge. You will never have enough wisdom to fully grasp everything that God does. Wisdom is important. We saw that last week in verses 1 to 9. It helps you learn how you should act before your authorities. But there's a limit to your wisdom. And that limit is because we're limited. You will never be able to exhaustively grasp everything that God does. And that's especially seen in the bad things that happen in this life that are never judged. We see them happen, they're never judged, seemingly. And we scratch our heads and say, well, wait, I know about you, God, and I know that that's wrong, and I know that that's supposed to be judged. Why isn't that happening? Well, I'm going to figure it out. It's above your pay grade because you and I are not God. Let me give you some examples of things that happen that we should expect that to be immediately judged. Top of my list is when God's name is taken in vain. It's used as an exclamation of pain or surprise or joy and happiness. God's name is treated as something that is just cheap. That deserves death. What about the slaughter of the unborn? Isn't that murder? Shouldn't there be justice for those? What about child trafficking? Or genocide? Torture? Extortion? Terrorism? Or slavery? Humans are always trying to take steps to alleviate these. And that's what they should do. But they will never bring those things to a complete halt because we live in a sin-cursed world. And so it can make you wonder, is there a God? Is there a God? If there is a God, doesn't he have the power to stop these things? Or at least punish the evildoers? Solomon's point in verses 10 to 17 is that you must trust and rejoice in what the Lord has given As I said, we're going to look at Solomon's main point, first of all, in verses 16 and 17. Here he says, number one, you will never fully grasp God's providence. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that it's done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night. And from what he says after that, he continues the sentence, but He's then applying it to his main point. So what we see here, number one, is I put it here, you'll never sleep if you fully, if you try to fully grasp God's ways. Wasn't that the case? You try to 
understand God fully, you will never be able to go to sleep because God is infinite, isn't he? Have you ever gotten so engrossed in something that you didn't go to sleep? Or have you ever pursued something in education and that often results in, as it says here, not seeing sleep. That's the expression here. Not seeing sleep. One sees no sleep. Which, think about it. If you don't see sleep, if you're seeing, you're not sleeping, are you? That's his point here. That's a a figure of speech for the Hebrews that we don't get, but the Hebrew would have got it right there. If your educational goal is getting a master's degree and mastering everything God does and knowing all the reasons for what God does, what Solomon say here? You will never sleep. The more you learn, the more you will see how much there is to learn. And so number two, verse 17, where Solomon says, Then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Number two, you will never master what God does and why he does it. You will never master it. He says this three times here in verse 17. A man cannot find out. He will not find it. He will not be able to find it. You can spend all your money, all your time, all your waking hours, and you'll never find it. David says this in Psalm 139, verses 17 to 18. Psalm 139, 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Trying to count God's thoughts. Eventually, you're going to fall asleep from exhaustion. And his thoughts are innumerable. Christian, the wise thing for you to do regarding what God does and why he does it is to recognize first you are not God. You have to recognize that. And then number two, you have to trust him. You must recognize you are not God. You must trust him. Number three, you have to leave everything in God's hands. He's the one in charge. Recognize you are not God. Trust him. Leave being God in his hands. And remember that the work of God is above your pay grade. But that's not what you hear people in this world say. People in this world, they will see the bad things that happen and they'll say, well, because I haven't seen God, therefore he doesn't exist. There was a cosmonaut who said that, a Russian uh, astronaut. Uh, he, one of the first ones, went into orbit around the earth and he said, well, I don't see God. He's not here. I'm in the heavens. Unbelievers will also say, if there was a God, he wouldn't let all these bad things happen. Have you ever had somebody tell you that or heard that? If there was a God, if God was good, he wouldn't let all these bad things happen. You know what these expressions are saying? I fully understand who God is. 
I grasp why God does what he does. And he falls short of what I think he is and what he should be doing. They brought God down to lower than themselves. And that is foolish. Does this mean you can't know any truth about God? No, that's not the case. You can. The scriptures are given to us for that reason. You can know truth about God, about what he does, and reasons for why he does things when those are given in the scripture. But the point here is you will never exhaustively get to the bottom of it. That is above your pay grade. So trust and rejoice in what the Lord has given you, not what he hasn't given you. But that's not our human fallen nature, is it? We always want more. God, I want more. No, trust and rejoice in what the Lord has given you, not what he hasn't given you. That's Solomon's point in verses 10 to 17. So now let's look at some examples uh, from verses 10, 11, verse 14, some examples of how, number two, you will never fully grasp God's providence with regard to the wicked. We have here some impossible to understand situations of life. And three examples of impossible to understand situations in life. Verse 10, I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity. Number one, I put it this way. People forget how the wicked mocked justice. This is an impossible to fully grasp situation. How people forget how the wicked mocked justice. We see in the middle here, it says they did this in the city. And so they actively did wickedness in their communities. Openly, actively did wickedness in their communities. Not only that, when it says they had come and gone from the place of holiness, that tells us they were regular attenders of worship. They participated in their religion there. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why would religious people welcome these wicked people in? Why would these religious people do spiritual work with those wicked people. I'm glad that never happens today in the Christian church, aren't you? Did you hear the sarcasm there? There's a, a large group in the United States called the, Nat, called the National Council of Churches. The opposite of that, any guesses, would be the American Council of Christian Churches. The National Council of Churches recently, it's composed of all major Protestant denominations, um, they are actively support and promote abortion. They preach it from their pulpits. They wear, uh, one of their um, members recently wore a stole, it's a, a thing that goes on both sides, uh, with a Planned Parenthood logo on it. And they preach this as allegedly Christian. What in the world? How is it, Solomon further says, that they died and they were forgotten? And his point in all this, it says, it is impossible to fully grasp 
how people just, they let this go. And when these wicked people die, it's just like nothing bad happened. I can't grasp it. That makes no sense. It's impossible for me to figure out that's what he means by vanity here. I don't get it. They didn't get what they deserved. Instead of being shamed, they were allowed to have active roles in religion and society. They were never punished for it. And when they died, people didn't think a thing of it. It makes no sense to me. A second example, verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. A second example of a, an impossible to understand situation is that the wicked are unpunished, encouraging more wickedness. The wicked are unpunished, encouraging, that's your blank there, encouraging more wickedness. The more that wickedness goes unpunished, the more wickedness there will be. They'll see they'll get away with it. We see this on the highway. This is an ex, maybe not an extreme example of wickedness, but you're driving down the highway. We're going to see this this week. We drive down to South Carolina to see grandbaby number nine that Megan had. A cute little son. Of course he's cute. It's our grandchild, right? We're going to be driving down uh, 77 through the hillbilly. Now, if you don't know what the hillbilly is, it's trucker lingo for West Virginia. You know, up and down, back and forth like this. And we're going to be driving down, and I guarantee you, we're going to find some state troopers sitting on the side of the road and people zooming by faster than the speed limit. What will that embolden other drivers to do? To also drive the same speed, faster than the speed limit. Unless you all start getting spiritual and high and mighty and holy and say, oh, I would never do that. We all have done it, haven't we? I'm not going to ask for any raise of hands. Solomon says in verse 11, he's not talking about breaking the speed limit. He is talking about evil, wickedness. And when wickedness isn't judged, people will see it as right. Do you see the contrast there? When it's not judged, people will see it not as wickedness, but they will see it as right, as something right to do. And everyone has a sin nature, and the more that open sin is allowed, the more people will openly sin, the, more, the, the longer justice and punishment is delayed, the more likely there won't be any good righteousness. There's some good parenting wisdom here in verse 11. Some good parenting wisdom here. The goal of parenting is not to punish uh, disobedience. That is not the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting is to raise your children up in the ways of the Lord, the discipline and instruction, so that when they get older, you've done all that you can. Proverbs 22, was it Proverbs 22? For raise your children up in the way that they should go. When they are older, they will not depart from it. That's the goal. It's a general statement. He's done all that they can, praying and encouraging so that when they get older, they will know right and wrong and they will pursue that. Now, they have to still choose that themselves, don't they? They can still choose to go contrary to that. But you as a parent, you've done all that you can. Well, 
if you never punish disobedience in your children, you let them go their own, the, the, their own sinful, wicked way, they're going to think, well, I guess this is okay. I can keep doing it. They talk back to you. They break your rules. And you don't do a thing to discipline them. And then they grow up and they get older. And why did they turn off so wickedly? Well, that's the way that you train them to go. So good parenting advice here. When bad people aren't punished, they will carry out those bad plans. A third example of an impossible to understand situation is in verse 14. There is a vanity which occurs on earth. There are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Number three, the wicked and the upright don't get what they deserve. The wicked and the upright don't get what they deserve. We can put verse 14 this way. Good Christians get what the wicked deserve. And the wicked are getting what Christians deserve. This is crazy when that happens. It doesn't make any sense. God, what are you doing? Why is this so? We must remember that we have limitations. We are not infinite. We don't know everything that God is doing and never will. You might have lots of wisdom and knowledge, but you will never be able to thoroughly understand everything that God does and why he does it. So what should you do? What should you do? That's the application then. Uh, Three specific truths that he tells us, but I've summarized it this way with number three. Embrace what you can know. That's trust. Embrace what you can know and enjoy God's good gifts. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. The first truth we need to see is that you must know that ultimately those who fear God will prosper. Those who fear God will prosper. God allows the wicked to openly sin hundreds of times a day. That's the point of the beginning of verse 12. He allows them to do that. But overall, overall, life is better for those who fear the Lord. It's not a perfect life, but overall, it is a better life. You won't be free from sickness or trouble, or in my case, allergies. But overall, you will live a more healthy life than if you had gone into a life of sin and wickedness. One man said, you won't be well off, but you will be well enough. The fear of the Lord involves completely trusting him. The fear of the Lord means completely trusting him. I memorized verse 12 in the New American Standard. I like how it has the end part. It will be well with those who fear God, who fear him openly. The Hebrew word there is, is that of a face, a, a wide open, uncovered face who fear him openly. You trust the Lord, 
You fear him and you don't hide it. It's there. It's clear. And you're not embarrassed about it. Are you embarrassed about the Lord? Are you embarrassed about the things of Christianity? Do you kind of hide it? Solomon says here, it will be well with those who fear the Lord, who fear him openly. Fear in the Lord rests in the truth that God is sovereign and good. I know, you know, God is sovereign. He is good. He will vindicate the righteous. He will punish the wicked. I know this. In God's time, he will do it. Number two, verse 13. It will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Number two, you know that ultimately those who do not fear God, you know that, I thought I said it wrong there, you know that ultimately those who do not fear God will perish. You know that unbelievers, the wicked, will perish. It is frequently the case. The life of open, open sin is a life of hardship and difficulty. If you have your new King James, or you have a King James here, you'll see that where it says, nor will he prolong his days, and then the new King James and the King James has a comma after days, and then in italics, two words that are added, which are, now, they, the translators do that to help us understand the sense. And almost always they're exactly right. They're not adding to Scripture. They're helping us understand what's being said. And so the thought that the translators of the King James and the New King James are, are trying to get across is, well, we need to remember that our days are as, as quickly gone as shadows are. That's the point that they think that this is saying. But guess what? Yours truly disagrees with that. Understand it this way. Without the comma, without the parallel, uh, the, the italics. Nor will he prolong his days as a shadow. What happens at the end of a day? The sun starts to go down, and that's from our perspective, because the sun really isn't going down, is it? The sun starts to go down, and... What happens to the shadow of the trees? Do the shadow of the trees, do they get shorter? No, the shadow of the trees gets what? Longer. And that's Solomon's point here. The wicked will not have longer lives, like the length of a shadow. That's his point here. They will not have longer lives like the length of a shadow. It is true, our lives are quickly gone. But his point here is that the wicked, the lives of the wicked will not grow longer into eternity. They will perish. They will not live forever. They think they're going to live forever, but they won't. Last, verse 15, number three. So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Number three, enjoy. Enjoy what God has given you instead of worrying about what he hasn't. Enjoy what God has given you instead of worrying about what he hasn't. We could read this. 
Nothing better than to eat, drink, and be merry. Wow, that sounds like hedonism. Hedonism is the idea of pleasure and happiness. That's what you live for. That's not what he's talking about here at all. Can you predict if you're going to have good experiences or bad experiences? An hour from now. We can't predict that, can we? So what should you do? Enjoy the joys of each day for what they are. Enjoy the joys of each day for what they are. They are God's good gifts that you should thankfully enjoy. Solomon has said this two times already. Back up to chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Back verses 12 and 13. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Then chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. You can add to this a New Testament passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 5. There we read how God gave marriage and he gave food to be received with thanksgiving to those who believe and know the truth. What's Solomon's point with verse 15 here? Don't waste your life trying to solve an unsolvable problem. In this case, the unsolvable problem is why does God not immediately judge the wicked? Why is God letting the righteous suffer? We will not know the ultimate reasons for that. Do we know that God is good? Do we know that God is sovereign? Do we know that he will judge the wicked someday and that he will vindicate the righteous? Yes, we do know that for certain. So these things leave those unsolvable problems in God's hands. Trust him and enjoy, if you will, the simple pleasures of life. Trust and rejoice in what the Lord has given. Now, does this mean we shouldn't pray? Oh, no, it doesn't mean that at all. We pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord, and vanquish wickedness and establish righteousness. Lord, be merciful to our country. Pull back our country from wickedness. And so on, we could keep praying. It does mean don't get mad at God. He knows what he's doing. I'd encourage you to read a couple psalms that are right in line with this. Three psalms in particular. The first is Psalm 10. Psalm 10. And with each of these, you'll read about how blatant the wicked are and then how God will judge them. In Psalm 10... The wicked say that God has forgotten 
He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. A second one would be Psalm 94. Psalm 94. The wicked say, God doesn't see us. What we do is hidden from him. A third Psalm, Psalm 73. Psalm 73. How does God know? He can't possibly figure out what we're doing. Christian, I would encourage you, grow in your knowledge of what God has told us in Scripture. The more you know, the better your faith, the deeper your faith will be. Instead of growing frustrated about what you can't know, grow in what you can know. But that's not what we do, is it? That's not how we respond. We want to learn what we can't know. And we put, and so as a result, we're putting all that time and effort into what we can't know instead of what we can know. Don't let what you can't know rob you of the joy of the truth that God has given us. I think another application here that beware of thinking that God owes you a trouble-free life. We've seen here that God can sovereignly in his providence allow the wicked to prosper and he can allow the righteous to suffer. Beware of thinking that God owes you a trouble-free life. That's what the prosperity teachers preach, isn't it? And that is idolatry. They are preaching a false God. They might call it the God of the Bible. They might use some passages of the Bible, but it's not the true God. That is idolatry. It is true that a little Greek and a little Hebrew can make you very dangerous. But that doesn't mean it's bad to learn some. Learn it. Is it bad for me to learn about accounting or truck driving or farming or engineering? I hope not. Help me understand your occupations better. But we need to recognize our limitations And we must beware of that fatal disease. Remember that? Big headius, know-it-allius. Beware of that. Don't go above your pay grade. Learn about God. Gain wisdom. But don't think, ever think, that you'll be equal with the Lord. Trust him and enjoy his good gifts. Let's pray.